Well, what, uh, what makes you smile? You know, I was thinking about that this week as I read uh, Nehemiah chapter 12, and uh, we'll talk more about the context there, but what a day it was in the life of the Jewish people uh, having returned from exile and finally got to the point where everything was kind of back in order again. But what makes you smile? A lot of things that make me smile, but uh, I wonder what makes you smile. Uh, uh, do my jokes make you smile, Gary? <laughs> No, not at all? Of course. Yeah. It, it might look like a smile, but it's more like a... More like a groan? Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so speaking of my jokes, I, I get uh, emails from time to time about Flat Earth, and someone was talking to me at the break about Flat Earth, and it reminded me, one of the reasons I don't think, you know, I don't believe in the Flat Earth theory, among many others, is that if the Earth was flat... All the cats would have knocked everything off the earth by now. So uh, that's reason enough right there. But uh, one of the things that makes me smile is my four-year-old granddaughter. And uh, she's at such a fun age, and uh, she says some of the funniest things. Now, I realize there's always an inherent danger telling grandparent stories because, you know, sometimes it just really relates to, to your grandchild. But that's because for most grandparents, they don't have the the prettiest granddaughter in the world. So uh, you'll have to bear with me. Uh, but no, recently she was trying to whistle along to uh, whistle along to that song from uh, Snow White, Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, it's off to work we go. You know that song? Well, after trying for a bit, she finally said, I just can't whistle. I think my whistles ran out. I'll have to wait till they fill back up. She said, four years old. A few seconds later, after a bit of a whistle was able to make its way through her lips, she said, ah, there you go. <laughs> uh, another time recently, I promised to play with her, and uh, she was not happy with how long I was taking to, to come play with her, and she said, uh, Papa, you're not hurry-upping. <laughs> so, I, I don't know about you, I think the world needs more smiles. Amen? What makes you smile? Maybe it's... Uh, a funny memory, you know, around our house uh, with six kids and uh, lots of adventures and stories that we've been through through the years. It's, it's quite often we, we are sitting around and someone will recall a, a funny story from one of the kids and then that sort of spurns a bunch of dis discussion, spawns a bunch of discussions about memories and for long we're just reminiscing about funnier times. Uh, maybe it's a, a humorous situation, you know, you you might not see it coming. In fact, you might be stressed or troubled or issues and anxieties, and all of a sudden something funny happens, and you just find yourself laughing, you know. But what makes you smile? When's the last time you really had a, a heartfelt, good laugh? When you get to chapter 12 of Nehemiah, it had been some time uh, since smiles swept across the faces of these returning exiles. In fact, more than 100 years in some cases. But Israel, as we've been reading about, was, was finally reestablished in the land. They'd begun to return in three phases from Babylon. Uh, their land was more secure than it had been since they first started returning. Uh, Nehemiah had succeeded in rebuilding the walls, in reestablishing the Mosaic law, and reorganizing the temple ministry and reinstituting some of the temple uh, activities. And as we talked about last week, the people had begun to repopulate the city. 
Um, remember, there were a lot of people that volunteered to come in and live within, within the walls of the city. It was not a safe place until then, until they'd gotten the walls built, the gates hung, and the guards put on duty. But now they were people repopulating the city. And so you get to chapter 12. We're almost through with this survey of Nehemiah. One more chapter to go after this week. But it's a day of dedication. Uh, and, and this dedication of the wall really is kind of the pinnacle of, of Nehemiah's book, and, and Ezra for that matter, <clears throat> because it was just an incredible celebration. And we're going to read a few passages about that in just a moment. But you know, the Bible has a lot to say about happiness and about smiles and about joy. <clears throat> you go to the book of Proverbs, a book of general principles about life, and we read that a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. In other words, when you're happy internally, when you're truly joyful, you can't help but show it. And at the same time, when you look at someone who's hurting, has a broken spirit, it's, it's reflected in their face. A couple verses later, this proverb goes on to say, All the days of the afflicted are evil. Now, evil in Hebrew doesn't necessarily mean morally evil. It can in some context, but it just means troubled, difficult, um, you know, that kind of thing. And so for someone who's afflicted, uh, every day is tough. But notice, he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. In other words, if your joy is based on the inside and not on your circumstances, every day is a, a continual feast. And of course, a verse that most of us know, Proverbs 17, a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. When you're truly joyful, it affects your whole being, even your physical aspect. Uh, but when you're burdened, hurt, bitter, struggling, discouraged, then it, it too can have a negative impact on your physical life. So as we walk through chapter 12, we're not going to read every verse, but I'm going to highlight a few verses of this celebration. I want to point out three things that should make us smile. <clears throat> three things that should make us smile. The first one is the biggest. It's what we see happening uh, predominantly in chapter 12 of Nehemiah. But we're happiest when we have something to celebrate. When we have something to celebrate, we like to celebrate special moments, don't we? Could be anniversaries, could be uh, little victories, little milestones, certain accomplishments. Uh, it doesn't matter what else might be going on at the moment, but when there's a cause for celebration, all of our troubles kind of fade into the background, and we take a, a moment to mark the moment, to celebrate we're happiest when we have something to celebrate. And that was certainly what was going on in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Nehemiah had wanted to make this celebration uh, known far and wide. He wanted it to be properly grand. And so he called all of the Levites from all over the region to come back and to help celebrate uh, the dedication of the wall. Verse 27 says, Now at the dedication of the wall, of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. The Levites had settled in various towns all around 
Jerusalem, and, and Nehemiah summoned them. He wanted them all there. This was to be a time of great celebration, a time of singing, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment, a time of instruments, uh, uh, just uh, something that everybody would know far and wide. It goes on to say in verse 43, Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. So you have to kind of get the picture. If this was happening in our day, this would be one of those viral social media moments where everybody knew something was happening at you know Plum Creek Chapel or wherever it was. But in that day, uh, everybody far and wide could hear the, the celebration, the shouts of joy, the singing, the just all of the... Uh, things happening within Jerusalem, and sitting on a hill as it did, it would emanate far and wide, and everybody knew something was going on there, and they could tell the people were happy, and it was stood out because of the grandeur of it, but it also stood out because, think about it, since the northern kingdom was first carried off into exile in 722 B.C., and then the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, ransacked in 586 B.C., and then here it is, another 100 years after that, we're in the 440s B.C. Uh, it had been a long time since anything that sounded fun or pleasant or enjoyable had happened in Jerusalem. So for multiple reasons, simply the grandeur of it as well as the, the newness of it, it got everybody's attention. So I want to think about this idea of a celebration for a moment. Do you have anything to celebrate? If you think and look at life through a human lens... Celebrations are, are fleeting. They're very circumstantial. They are based on uh, our surroundings. Uh, and, and frankly, we have become conditioned to celebrate insignificant things. Uh, for example, sports victories, right? Uh, by the way, for you Broncos fans, a victory. Let me explain what that is. Sorry. Just kidding. Hey, the Cowboys got crushed last week as well, so I've, I have no place to talk. But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we're sports fans. Many of you are sports fans, and, and we love to celebrate victories, don't we? It's, it's kind of a form of escapism. But if we're not careful, that can get out of balance, right? And we can start, uh, you know, making insignificant victories of our favorite team, which in the grand scheme of things are nothing, become important things. And life has a way of doing that to us. We, we elevate the little things and make them big things, and then the things that should really be big things end up getting overshadowed and become little things and neglected. When I was a kid, I mean, I literally, you know, would cry if my favorite team lost. You know, I can remember really being, uh, being discouraged. But what, what are some other insignificant things that we might celebrate? Maybe an unexpected financial gain, right? I mean, let's be honest, we get an unexpected check or a bigger refund than you thought or, you know, you miscalculated in your checkbook and you realize you made a $200 error in your favor and you go, oh, yes, you know, let's, let's go out to eat or, you know, it's a, it's a time to celebrate, but it's really insignificant. Or what about this one? Catching a green light, right? All of us are like, yes, you know, green yellow, amber, it doesn't really matter the, the color of the light. The point is you catch it, right? And you go, yes, we made it through this light. We didn't have to wait another two minutes, you know. Uh, and, and other windshield moments uh, that we tend to celebrate. You know what a windshield moment is from that old country song, sometimes you're the windshield and sometimes you're the bug, right? Well, we call those windshield moments, you know. 
And, uh, and, and that's okay. It's okay to celebrate these types of things, but you've got to keep it in perspective because in the grand scheme of things, these things are fleeting and they're really not of any eternal weighty value. So what are some things to really celebrate? We have a lot. We have a lot. And I want to camp out here in God's Word and, and point out a few things that maybe because of the stresses and anxieties of life, we might have suppressed these to the back of the line and kind of forgotten about them. But it's a reason that we should have the kind of celebration that Nehemiah and his kinsmen did every day. Obviously, number one on that list has got to be our eternal salvation. I mean, think about it. Uh, we were all in the same predicament. We were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And that means that we were hopeless and helpless on the road to a literal place of torment called hell. No hope that apart from the redeeming work of God, who in his great love and grace sent his eternal son and our savior to this earth, put on human flesh, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, took your place and my place on the cross to pay our penalty for sin. We were all under the same penalty. We were all guilty, all under the same weight, all had the same price to pay. And we couldn't pay that price. No matter how hard we worked, no matter how much good works we performed, no matter how much of a commitment we make, no matter our religious heritage, our baptism, our family history, nothing within us could overcome that penalty of sin, which is eternity in hell. And yet God, in his incredible love, Romans 5, 8, sent his son to die in our place on the cross. And when Jesus took your sin and my sin upon him on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God, paid the debt in full, rose again the third day, and freely offers the gift of eternal life to anyone who will simply accept it by faith. It's a free gift. I mean, in fact... What's amazing is that the word grace, it's the word charis in Greek, it means free gift. And yet Paul, in Romans 5, actually, in a redundancy, explicitly spells out that it's a free gift. He uses the phrase free gift. And a lot of people point out, well, that's redundant. Well, you use redundancy to emphasize things. And Paul was wanting to emphasize this is absolutely 100% free. Now, that's something to celebrate. When you've got an insurmountable debt... And someone pays that debt with no strings attached. That's the thing about free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. Right. And so many people, I think the reason they're not thankful for their salvation is because they go through life thinking that somehow they contributed something to it. That on the strength of their commitment, or because they made Jesus Lord, or they put him on the throne of their life, or they promised or pledged to obey him, or Lord, I'm going to follow you, or I'm going to stop sinning, or I'm going to be better, or Lord, I'll, I'll follow you the rest of my life. Somehow they, they have this sense that eternal salvation is a bilateral contract between you and God. And because of that, it diminishes the power and the awesomeness of God's grace and what he did for us. And so if you think you earned part of it yourself, of course you're not going to be prone to be thankful for that. In fact, you're going to be prone to be insecure, worried, doubt, live your whole life in this vicious cycle of, am I really saved? I sinned yesterday. I might not be saved. <laughs> well, here's a newsflash for you. Christians sin. They shouldn't. There's consequences for that. If we're living out the new life we have in Christ, we won't sin. Sin is never sourced in the new nature. It's always sourced in the old man. 
But that's, that's the reality as long as we're topside this earth. But when you really understand God's grace, that's something to celebrate. That's something to rejoice about. That's something that will bring a smile to your face. And by the way, it's also quite motivating. You know, gifts are, are motivational. They, they motivate us, you know. Um, someone had given us a gift recently at the ministry at Not By Works Ministries, and I took a picture of it just the other day because I was using it. And I said, hey, I just want to thank you again for this gift, you know. And every time we use it, I think, wow, praise God for this gift, right? Gifts don't promote sin. They promote godliness, and certainly the gift of salvation is that way. But our eternal salvation is something to celebrate. And you see this theme of joy throughout the New Testament as it relates to our eternal salvation. And I think people miss it. It starts the very day Jesus was born when the shepherd, shepherds were in the field and the angel says, don't be afraid for behold, I bring you what? Good tidings of great joy. <laughs> this is great news. You know, your sins are going to be paid for. This suffering servant that Isaiah the prophet talked about had finally come. The Lamb of God had come. Um, and then you see a little bit later, remember when the Magi come a couple of years later as Jesus was just a boy? And what did they say? When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Right? And especially in Luke's gospel, as we saw in Bethlehem the night of Christ's birth, this theme of joy comes up again and again. It's the Greek word kara, and it relates in the context to our eternal salvation. Um, here's Jesus after he sent the 70 out. Remember, they came back. And they were stunned at, you know, how the demons were subject to them. And what does Jesus say? Hey, don't rejoice in that, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't spend a lot of time these days casting out demons or interacting with the spiritual realm. I feel like the demonic realm interacts with me a lot, but I, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of time doing that. The things that I'm doing are far less impressive. In fact, if I did, I would think, wow, praise God, this is amazing. But the disciples, they were doing that. And, and understandably, they thought, wow, this is pretty amazing. They were rejoicing over this, the victory that they have in Christ's power. But Jesus gently rebukes them and says, you're missing the point. You want to really celebrate something? Celebrate that you're no longer under the penalty of sin. That your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You have an eternal home in heaven. You've been forgiven. And the moment anyone places his or her faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, instantly you become born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. And, and you're instantly changed. And at that moment, you get eternal life at that precise moment. Do you realize you get eternal life the moment you believe the gospel? Not when you die. Your eternal life begins the moment you are saved. And so as we live out our days on this earth, uh, if, we, uh, if the Lord doesn't come back in our day, then every human being is going to face the same eventuality. From dust we came to dust we will return. Life's ultimate statistic is the same for every human being. One out of one dies. But for a believer, death is just the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. It's just an instantaneous moment where we pass from this old sin-stricken world into the presence of our Almighty God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we are truly part of 
the family of God. And that's something to rejoice about, that our home in heaven is secure. You get to Luke 15, and this is that famous passage where Jesus tells the three stories about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We call that last one the prodigal son. Fascinating story that people often miss the point of, but in the context, Jesus is sort of juxtaposing the the self-righteousness of the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, you know, to the humility of the dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles. And he's, he's, he kind of climaxes the story with the story of the, the lost son. And the hero is exactly the opposite of what you would think. Because in the story, you've got this very righteous older son who dots all of his I's, crosses all of his T's. I mean, he's got it down. And yet, it's the younger son who was guilty of profligate living. He was actually living with pigs at one point. He, he squandered his father's inheritance. And that's who gets celebrated. That's who the fatted calf is killed for. Why? The key is understanding the words of, of that young man as he came back, which he said, I am not worthy. And so Jesus says three times in these parables, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, one sinner who changes his mind and recognizes that there's nothing in him that's good and only God can save him. Then over 99 just persons, that is 99 people who think they're righteous, but really aren't. And they think they have no need of repentance. And that's exactly what was going on with that older son. He thought he was in good shape. But Jesus is trying to tell the unbelieving Israelites in, that, in his first century culture, look, you need to recognize that it's faith righteousness that saves, not fake righteousness, not self-righteousness. And so again, we see this idea of joy. I mean, this is a big deal that Jesus Christ saved us from the penalty of sin. You want to celebrate something, that's something you can celebrate and should celebrate every day. But then it goes beyond that. We can really celebrate our relationship with Jesus because not only did he rescue us from the penalty of sin, but he's right there with us every step of the way. And Jesus' presence should be something that amazes us and stuns us. And you know, he said before he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, Lo, I am with you always. Lo, uh, in Greek, just means behold. Um, look at this is the idea. I mean, it's something to really consider. And yet, so often we go through every day and forget that we've got Jesus right there with us, fighting the battles there, you know, wherever we go. Um, in the upper room, the very night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus told the disciples, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, there's a quality aspect to joy. The more you abide in Christ and stay close to him, the word abide in, in Greek means to remain to remain in close fellowship. The more we stay close to the Lord, the more joyful you are. Feeling discouraged lately, not feeling much joy? How close are you to the Lord? First of all, do you know the Lord? Has there been a time in your life when you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation? But as a believer, are you consciously aware of His presence in your life day to day? Remember, Jesus said, I come that you might have life, and that you might have it more abundantly. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven to start enjoying our eternal life. We can enjoy it right now, and we should. Remember, our citizenship is not 
of this world. John the Apostle, shortly before he died, wrote these words. The whole first epistle of John is all about fellowship. And he says, These things I write to you that your joy may be full. We can celebrate our relationship with Jesus here and now. Yes, our eternal salvation, he saved us from the penalty of sin. Our home in heaven is secure. We never have to doubt that. But what about now? Do you wake up every day and rejoice because of your relationship with Christ? And then our relationship with other believers. Now that's something that we really often overlook. Um, The fact that we have a common bond. There's something among God's people that binds us together. And that something is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He binds us together. We We can relate on levels that other people can't. You know, if you've ever traveled internationally, you know that feeling, you know, you and your wife or you and your husband, you, you get off the plane and you get away from the airport and finally get to your hotel and you look around and you realize, boy, we don't speak this language. We don't understand what's going on. You just have this sudden feeling of being isolated. But then you look at each other and you go, but we've got each other. So we can talk. We can talk and, and, and we can talk and maybe they don't understand what we're saying right? So we can make fun of that funny-looking person in the corner, and they won't know what we're saying, right? No, you have that intimacy, that sense of, you know, we have each other. There's this bond when it seems like everyone else is against us. Well, that's the way we should function in this world. We ought not be like the world. We're going to talk about that in our final message in, in Nehemiah, but we ought to be different, and, but we ought to have each other. And that's why, again and again, in the, in the New Testament, the church is told, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, if you want to rejoice over insignificant things, plenty of worldly unbelievers that you can get to cheer on your favorite team with or, you know, whatever. But only with believers can we really have that true sense of joy. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, what? All members rejoice with it. Again and again, as the gospel moves westward, you see in the book of Acts this idea of joy. For example, Philip, when he was preaching in Samaria, the Bible tells us there was great joy in that city as people came to faith. Or Acts chapter 11, uh, in the context of the salvation of uh, uh, Cornelius's, uh, not Cornelius, uh, uh, yeah, Cornelius's family in chapter 10, and then chapter 11, uh, Peter gives the report to the church. And here we, we read at the end of chapter 11, the news of these things came to the ears of the church, the church leaders in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to Antioch. And when he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. As he saw the hand of God moving in the people of God and people coming to faith, it was something that he rejoiced over. And then our blessed hope. Now this one's near and dear to my heart, especially in days like this when we see the the stage rapidly being set for God's end times plan. We see the new world order rapidly unfurling. We see one world political, religious, and economic system being put into place right before our very eyes. We see stunning signs even in the last, you know, since 1948 of God setting the stage for the return of Christ to set up his kingdom as promised. So this ought to be something that we celebrate. Uh, the blessed hope. In fact, going back to Jesus' statement in the upper room, he says to the disciples, this again was just hours before he was betrayed and ended up on the cross. 
He says, therefore, you now have sorrow. They, they were sad that Jesus was going to be leaving them. But he says, but I'll see you again and your heart will rejoice. Remember, he had said earlier in this discussion around the table, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also, to reference to the rapture, not the second coming. And that should bring joy, and, and that joy no one can take from us. And then you see references throughout Paul's writings to this blessed hope. The, what is the blessed hope that should bring us joy? The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The very first passage where the word rapture is used in the original language, uh, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us the teaching about what Jesus alluded to in the upper room, is 1 Thessalonians. And listen to what Paul says when he introduces this subject. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died physically, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. There is a joy to the rapture. There is a joy to remembering that at any moment in the twinkling of an eye, we can be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So we're happiest when we have something to celebrate. What are you celebrating today? The Christian life, every day should be a new celebration, right? Every day. But secondly, when we have someone to thank. We're happiest when we have someone to thank. You know, gratitude and joy are really two sides of the same coin. It's very, very difficult to be thankful, to have a heart of gratitude and frown at the same time. Try it sometime. Or when you're frowning, when you're discouraged, when you're down, think about things to be thankful for. And before long, that frown will disappear because you realize, you know what, I've got so much to be thankful for. That's what the old hymn, Count Your Many Blessings, is really all about. It's based on James 1. People miss the point there when James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He's not saying, look at your trials and think of them as if they're happy. That's not what he's saying. In the midst of your trial, count all the points of joy. Find the things that are happy that are going on in your life, that are, you're blessed by, and it'll make these trials seem just insignificant. It's a heavenly versus earthly perspective thing. So it's very difficult to be thankful and frown at the same time. If you go back to our text in verse 8, uh, we read, Moreover, the Levites were Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Madaniah, who led the thanksgiving psalms. So many of the psalms that the children of Israel sang were songs of thanksgiving. Not all of them, certainly, but many of them. Some of them were lament psalms. Some of them were imprecatory psalms. Some of them were royal psalms or Davidic uh, messianic psalms. But you read through the 150 psalms, there's a lot of thanksgiving in there. In fact, it ends the collection of psalms with a psalm of, uh, of thanksgiving. We read on, So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. I was talking to my brother-in-law, uh, Brent. By the way, hi, Brent. Uh, Wendy's brother's with us today from Texas. He sings in a choir, 120-some-odd people there in Texas. And, uh, you know, I grew up in traditional churches that had choirs. It's kind of a sad thing that churches don't have choirs anymore. Not a mandatory thing but it's very biblical when they wanted to praise god and give thanks to god they had choirs and in this case they had two large thanksgiving choirs but he sings in a choir 120 people they're practicing for the christmas cantata and it's just i'm kind of jealous i i, I enjoy that you know um in fact uh 
when I'm standing during the song service singing at the back, I, I, that's just a fun time for me. In fact, when you said, uh, uh, boy, y'all sound good this morning, I thought you were talking to me. But then I quickly realized you were talking to the whole group. But Nehemiah had two large Thanksgiving choirs. One went one way, the other went the other way, and they were singing and giving thanks to the Lord because of all that he had done. And this is a people who had been carried away into captivity for, you know, 150 years. I mean, I don't know that any of us have anything quite that desperate that we've had to face in our life, and yet they gave thanks. The Bible tells us in the church age we should give thanks for everything. We should always have this thankful attitude, and at the very least, we always have our eternal salvation to be thankful for, right? Paul said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We're happiest when we have someone to thank. I read a story about a, a young man, young teenager, who was just beginning to discover the value of money. And so an idea popped into his mind. And uh, he said, I know how I can earn some more money. He, 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 and he wrote a note uh, to his mom. And the note said, Dear Mom, for washing the dishes, you owe me $5. For cleaning my room, you owe me another $5. For hanging up my clothes, you owe me $5. For mowing the lawn, you owe me $20. Total due, $35. And he wrote up a bill totaling $35, and he left it with the note on the kitchen counter. Well, after reading the note and seeing the bill, the mother left a note of her own on the kitchen table. And the note sim simply said, Dear son, for carrying you nine months and being sick as a dog, no charge. <laughs> for staying up all night with you, night after night when you were sick, no charge. For working overtime so that I could get you those special tennis shoes, no charge. For washing your clothes, making you supper, no charge. Total due, zero. Signed, your mother who loves you very much. How often do we say to God, pay up. You know, What's in it for me? You owe me, God. But when we really stop and think about it, man, we have a lot to be thankful for. God has, has done some amazing things in our life if we'll just stop and take an inventory. So we're happiest when we have someone to thank. There's nothing quite as beautiful as a grateful heart. And by the way, there's nothing quite so ugly as a bitter hard heart. So we're happiest when we have something to celebrate, someone to thank, and lastly, when we have some place to give. We're happiest when we have some place to give. It feels good to give. It just feels good uh, to give. It, going back to our text, at the same time, we're appointed... Uh, hey, Mike, can you do me a favor? And this always happens when I'm gone, but this uh, plug has come unplugged and my computer's about to die. It just alerted me. And I don't know, it's plugged in there. Is it not plugged in at the other end? Yeah, it looks like it might be unplugged over here. Well, that's... 
I think sometimes sometimes the cleaning crew did that green plug, I think. Sorry we about that. It, well, we made it that far. That's pretty good. Well, two services, I, and I didn't notice. I, sh I need to get in the habit of looking to make sure better? my little light. Yeah, that's much better. Now I can preach for another two hours. So. <laughs> um, I'm surprised you didn't go back over and unplug it. But, uh, there's still time. Yeah, there's still time. <laughs> Amen. All right. So it's probably a cat lover that unplugged it. So I deserve it. So... So not only were they celebrating and had these Thanksgiving choirs, but they reinstituted the, the offering and tithe system to, to, to help pay for and fund the temple services. And so we read in verse 44, at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them in. Uh, into them from the fields of the cities, the portions specified by the law for the priests, the Levites, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. So first fruits, I think we understand what that is. You know, according to God's word, God owns everything. It all belongs to him. And God's people are called to give the first fruits, whether that's, you know, your, your, your wheat harvest, your crops, your, your olive oil, your honey, your new wine, the, the wool from the sheep, whatever it is, the first part of that, belongs uh, to the Lord. And then tithes is something, even though it's scarcely mentioned in the New Testament, and when it is, it's in a negative context, but the term tithe means tenth, a tenth. And so the Old Testament law prescribed certain tithes, certain occasions when everyone was to give one-tenth of their annual crop or pr produce or whatever it is to the work of the Lord. And uh, I think some people have a misunderstanding about this concept of tithe, and you, you run across from time to time people in, in certain uh, denominations and, and, and churches that are legalistic about it, and they'll kind of pat themselves on the back. Well, I give a, a tithe of my income to the church, and whenever I come across someone like that, I always say, man, that's fantastic. I mean, you, you give 23 and a third percent of your annual income to the church? And they look at me like, what? No, tithe is tenth. No, you, you're not understanding what the Bible says about a tithe. In the Old Testament, the tithe, there were three of them. Once a year, they would give 10% of their annual income to pay for the Levite service. But every year, they gave a second additional 10% to pay for the festivals. And then guess what? Every third year in Israel, they would give an additional 10% for the poor. So if you average that out, that's 23 and a third percent per year. And this is just what God prescribed in the law. It was part of the system. Of course, we're not under the law anymore. We're in the church age. We're under grace. And so the Bible still speaks about giving. And what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9 is that uh, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion like the law. I mean, you were disobedient if you didn't follow the tithe system. But now we're supposed to give uh, cheerfully, uh, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we don't want to give out of guilt or out of obligation or compulsion or reluctance or for some personal agenda. You know, in 35 years of ministry, I was talking to John about this. You know, we've seen a lot, and sometimes we'll see people that, that, that love to give generously or appear to give generously to the church, but it turns out they have a hidden agenda. 
and then uh, they, they want to you know, enact their way or their plans or they want things to be done their way. And when it doesn't work out that way, then they get mad and they take their toys and go home. We've seen that happen lots of times. So those are all wrong reasons to give for a personal agenda, out of compulsion, out of legalism. The New Testament paints a different picture. It's one of voluntary, generous giving to support the work of the local church. I, I've said uh, ever since we started Not By Works Ministries in 1999, that God's divine design in Scripture is for the primary avenue of giving for the believer to be the local church. And uh, wherever we've been, Wendy and I have always made it a practice to give uh, first and foremost to the church. This is our church. This is God's divine design. If God puts it on your heart to give over and above that to a local ministry that's like-minded or some other ministry that's also doing the Lord's work, that's fine. You can supplement and give wherever the Lord lays it on your heart to give. But I think it's not biblical to give primarily to some parachurch ministry and, and, and be a part of a local assembly and not support that church. And I'm so thankful that Plum Creek Chapel is filled with incredible givers. I mean, I know we've got a lot of new folks that have just started coming over the last year, but just so you know, this church has a rich history of being obedient to this general principle of the primary avenue of giving being the local church. And we've, we're debt-free. We've paid off our mortgage. We've built a parking lot. We've added on. We've, we've renovated the building. We've added staff. And we continue, because of your generosity and, and God's incredible grace, to, to, to run a surplus. So that's, that's great. Not every church can say that. And I think as long as we remain faithful to what God's entrusted to us, he will continue to increase that stewardship. But if we ever get our eyes off of this principle, uh, I think we're going to and become self-absorbed and self-consumed, then, then I think uh, we're going to find uh, problems in that area. Uh, but it, when you give for all the right reasons in the biblical way, it's, it makes you happy. Uh, greatest, I mean, great givers are some of the happiest people you'll come across. They just, that's why, in fact, if you go back to 2 Corinthians 9, that word cheerful is hilarion. In Greek, it's the cognate of where we get the English word hilarious. And it just, it just shows, hey, they're just ecstatic with joy to be giving to something that they know has eternal value and is going to make a difference. So we're happiest when we have something to celebrate, someone to thank, and some place to give. And that was true for the people of Israel as they dedicated the wall in that powerful uh, ceremony. So I, I always try to leave you with one basic takeaway that you can kind of remember and that the Holy Spirit hopefully will bring to our minds throughout the week. But this week I'm going to do three, one that corresponds to each one of these things that we saw in the text. So something to celebrate. Well, here's the takeaway. Celebrate your new life in Christ. <laughs> I mean, that, we, we take it for granted, don't we? Every day you ought to wake up and say, I'm a child of God. I mean, what should a child of the king do today, right? Uh, it's an exciting thing. Uh, it should make you smile. Secondly, remember to say thank you. A heart of gratitude is, uh, is something that covers a multitude of problems, doesn't it? Uh, and then finally, find something to believe in and support it financially. You'd be amazed at how, you know, as Paul said, again, this is not a formula that's not legalistic. It's not like, you know, these, some of these health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. If you give $100, well, God's going to give you 1000 you know. But I know, I know this. If you give for the right reasons to the right cause, God will definitely bless. 
in, in ways that only you and the Lord may, may know. So find something to believe in and support it financially. So what makes you smile? Hopefully we've given you some food for thought this week to maybe put a smile on your face for reasons that you haven't thought about for a while. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this uh, just beautiful picture that we see of, of God's people surrounded by more of God's people giving you honor and glory and praise for your goodness. Father, we have a lot to be thankful for, a lot to make us smile. I just pray that as we navigate these uh, difficult times in our world around us, that we would stay close to you and be reminded every day of all that you've done for us and what awaits us in glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.